Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And with us today, we have a very special guest that I'm excited to jump into conversation with, uh, independent journalist, uh, Catherine Corcoran and author, oh, and former, excuse me, AP Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America. Uh, Wajahat, I'm going to turn it over to you to provide the proper uh, intro of Catherine and her new book that should scare the hell out of everyone and everyone should also own, um, Wajahat. Yeah, so Catherine uh, and I met 17 years ago when she actually profiled a young, skinnier, healthier, more optimistic Wajatali when he was promoting. And notice I'm talking about myself in the third person. It's a different person. When I was uh, promoting my play in the Bay Area and she was writing for San Jose Mercury News. And here she is with a new fantastic book, uh, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the true cost of silencing the press. And on Democracy Ish, we talk a lot about the fourth estate, talk about the media, how to make it better. Uh, And this is a story that will chill you. Uh, It's a story about a Mexican journalist, Regina Martinez, who used to write for a magazine known as Proceso. And she was out in Veracruz, and she was out on the front lines, y'all, talking about the corruption and abuse of Mexican politics 10 years ago after the magazine published an article about corruption of two Veracruz politicians, the magazine went missing and she was bludgeoned to death in her bathroom. The story, Mm -hmm. according to all the journalists, was that this was no accident. This was not just a break-in, that she was killed for speaking out and doing her job as a journalist. And Catherine went to Mexico, talked to her Mm -hmm. colleagues, tried to dig out the real story and issue a warning to American journalists and our democracy that what happens when the fourth estate bends the knee to power and what happens if we don't allow our journalists and commentators to speak and tweet out freely about the abuses of power. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. It's great seeing you. Tell us the story. Tell us the story of Rahina. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And it's great to see you and great 
I knew back in the day that you were going to be an important voice in our culture. So glad to see that. Your, Danielle, your check is in the mail. Your check and, is in the mail. And Danielle, very nice to meet you. So Rahina was a reporter ahead of her time. When she started her career in the mid to late 1980s, the press in Mexico was very much controlled by the government. Mexico was ruled by a one-party system for 71 years. And even though the press itself was not owned by the government, it wasn't state press, um, the government was very effective in controlling what the media wrote through basically perks, money, threats if people stepped out of line. And because of that, there, there weren't a lot of journalist assassinations in those decades because people pretty much followed the rules. When she started her career, she was never that kind of reporter. She didn't accept the official story. She went out in the streets. She traveled to very remote parts of her state, Veracruz, to see exactly what was going on on the ground, to talk to people, to find the truth, to verify her stories, to uh, dig out documents. And that made her very controversial from the very beginning because she gave voice to communities that at that time didn't have voice. They weren't covered by the mainstream media. And that would be indigenous communities, the poor, the workers, um, women's groups, political opposition. And imagine if no one is covering those groups, just the richness of stories there were that she uncovered practically on a daily or weekly basis. And it made we don't her have to imagine, Catherine. That's that's our life. <laughs> we have to imagine. And so we so she was unpopular from the very beginning. And in Mexico, they they call it incomodo, uncomfortable. She was uncomfortable to the powers that be there. You know, it it's it... I listen to this and I and I think about as you're as you're telling her story, the importance of journalism as a whole. Right. We're storytellers. People go in and you give light and air and texture and color to communities that are oftentimes overlooked. Can you speak a bit you know, more about why the Mexican government was or, you know, uncomfortable and why, you know, she continued even given the 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 threats um, that I'm certain that she was receiving. Well, the the Mexican government, it, it was an authoritarian one party system, much like China. There were there were um, sort of there were elections, but everybody knew who was going to win. And there were stolen elections when the political opposition started to rise. Uh, the, the ruling party would actually steal the elections. And so they set the narrative. And the narrative was good for Mexico, so to speak. And the narrative was good for them because the narrative was designed to keep them in power. And so anything that went against the narrative was controversial. And, mm -hmm. and much like we're seeing in, in our own country now, if there was an independent voice, if there was reported and verified journalism, um, you know, it was a lie, they were corrupt, they were enemies. Anything that went against the agenda was the enemy of the state. And that, that phrase, the enemy of the state, it, it literally 
Now we have MAGA and Trump and others for the past seven years referring to journalists in the United States as enemy of the people, which mm -hmm. was also used to demonize journalists and critics of the Stalin regime. Not really a regime that was fond of democracy and openness, folks. Uh, you can Wikipedia that. And, and we're seeing parallels now, Catherine. And, you know, I'm just really curious. This story has been going on for like 10 years now. So Rahina was brutally murdered 10 years ago. And the official line of the Mexican government is, oh, break-in. Oh, it was just a break-in, and there was like a, a robbery and a homicide. But what was it about this particular story 10 years on that you said, I got to go to Veracruz mm -hmm. and dig up this story and piss off all the wrong people? Well, I think it was emblematic of what was really going on. I became the AP bureau chief in Mexico in, in 2010. And by that time, and there was an epidemic of journalist killings. There were six, seven, 10 a year, which is really unheard of, especially in a democracy that's not at war. And so these killings were being dismissed by the government as, well, they're not real journalists. They're being killed because they're corrupt. They're being killed because they're working for narcos. Um, and, and it was an, a very effective narrative because alongside that, the, the cases were never investigated. There was no transparency in the cases. And so there was really no way of knowing what killed these journalists. Certainly in that time, there were co corrupt and co-opted journalists because that was the system for 70 years in Mexico. And so in some cases, that was true. There certainly were and are narco journalists, but the government was very quick to dismiss all of them as that. That's what it is, end of story. And we had no way of verifying anything that they were saying. And the numbers were ridiculously high, disturbingly high. They're even higher now. Um, and so when she was killed, it was obvious to everyone because she was a journalist beyond repro reproach. It was obvious to everyone that she had been killed for her work and for something she had published or maybe was about to publish. And so, and, and the cover up of her case was so swift. It started barely hours after they found her body that this killing had nothing to do with her work. And they invented a whole story of a double life and how she had a romantic relationship with the street criminal and led him into the house and he was there to rob her, et cetera, et cetera. It and sounds, so, Catherine, it sounds very familiar hmm, to what we're hearing this week about the assassination attempt on Nancy and Paul Pelosi. Hmm. Anyway, I digress. Please continue. No, no, it's it, no, it's very relevant. What we're seeing in this misinformation around the Paul Pelosi attack is very similar to the tactic that the government used to basically um, convince people to look away, uh, look away from this killing of this very high profile, aggressive journalist. Um, she was hanging out with the wrong people and it was her fault and the story. And so it was very effective in, term, in terms of tamping down any kind of controversy or public discussion, because at the same time, the people there had become terrorized by their own government and the press included. The people, when Rahina was killed, the other journalists who were doing her kind of work had to leave for their security because they felt that they were next or on, on a, some kind of hit list. 
And then others who stayed just self-censored and went with the official story. And so the critical press after her killing was pretty much shut down in that state. And anyone who stepped out of line felt the consequences if they if they veered from the narrative, including the journalists. And so it really puzzled me and intrigued me. You know, as a journalist, we like to dig things up and find the truth in a situation. I just couldn't let it go because number one, it was so obvious why she was killed. And number two, they so quickly covered up the story and shut down any kind of talk and made it very scary for anyone who wanted to talk about what really happened to talk. And I just wanted to unpack all that. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. I, I, I listened to this um, and I remember reading uh, about this in U.S. press and thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is where America is headed. This is where as Donald Trump is standing in his rallies and he is going after CNN and he is saying that CNN cannot be trusted. CNN then starts getting bomb threats. If we if we all remember. Right. Um, he goes after MSNBC. He signals out particular journalists, right, for the kinds of stories that they're writing. And it isn't just Trump. It has become, as Waj has said, the entirety of the Republican Party. Right. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, <laughs> we don't at this point in the U.S., we're not covering up the danger in the way that the Mexican government covered up these murders and try to disavow them or just, you know, push them to the side. But what American media, Catherine, in my opinion, is doing is downplaying the rise of violence in this country, which I think is just as dangerous. And so I want to give you, you know, the opportunity to kind of 
What dots do you see that you see very clearly that should be connected between the rise and the rampant violence against journalists in, in Mexico and what we are seeing as just this, oh, the man that attempted murder of, of the Speaker of the House and her husband, oh, he's just crazy. He's just a lunatic. We're not going to connect that to the death threats that CNN uh, CNN was receiving or the bomb threats. We're not going to connect those dots to other ways in which, you know, political opponents and the p- attempted kidnapping of a governor. What do you think is missing and should be connected in terms of what you have so readily written in your book to what is happening in the United States at such a rapid pace? Well, I think there are a lot of dots to connect there. And I would just say that when I first started in, uh, investigating or researching this book, my purpose was to bring more attention to the fact that so many journalists were being killed in Mexico because there was, there was no consequence. There was no change. It just got worse. And I thought, well, as a, as a, as a foreign correspondent, the one thing I could do is bring the story to a wider audience, to bring the story to people outside of Mexico and to find out what really happened to Rahina because everyone wanted it covered up so badly. That's how I started. Then almost immediately, this rhetoric that I was hearing in Mexico about the press is corrupt and any critical voice is being paid off or is somehow bad or the enemy... I started hearing that exact same rhetoric in my own country. And I, I say in the book, that was one of the most shocking things of all was to hear this narrative in my own country. And it, and it has progressed very rapidly. Um, it started probably around 2015, um, escalated with our previous president. But I, I don't want to just pin it to one person anymore. It's mm-hmm. a tactic mm-hmm. and it's a very effective tactic tactic. It was effective in Mexico. It's been effective around the world. And that's why we need to pay attention to it here. Because even though we're nowhere near the situation in Mexico, the erosion has already started. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is this, is that um, it's authoritarianism 101, that whoever is against the regime is the enemy. And if the press is critical of the regime, the press is the enemy. And so that's the kind of thing that we're that we're hearing here already. And also this idea of confusion and disinformation so that people don't know what to believe. The, the, the immediate thing on the Paul Pelosi case is we're going to we're going to flood a lot of disinformation so that people don't really understand what happened. And, and that's very similar to the Rahina case because they did the same thing. There were postings online hours after her death saying this had nothing to do with her journalism. Mm. And so it's it's like a, you know, a fog machine so that people really don't know what to believe. And so when people don't really know what to believe, when, yep. when, when the independent press is silenced and you don't have good information you can rely on and trust, you are easily manipulated. And that mm-hmm. is is the is the purpose of of this narrative to confuse people and to say to them, well, just listen to us. We have the truth. So listen to us. Don't listen to those other voices because those other voices are the enemy. 
And, you know, the press in America has always been criticized, sometimes with good reason. And, you know, you have your criticism of the press, which many times I agree with. And, and so it's always been part of the discourse, you know, whether we're sensationalist or biased, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone up to this point agreed that we needed a free press to maintain our democratic system. And when Donald Trump called us the enemy of the people, I remember an interview with all the former presidents in the United States who all said, we didn't like the press. We didn't like the way they treated us, yeah. but it's necessary. And so yeah, that George was- George W. Bush, a, Obama, all of them said it. Exactly. Republicans, Democrats, they all said it. And so again, there's this shift in the paradigm where the message is, is not critical of the media in the sense of, do better, which I agree with. It's it's a message to silence the media and to it's mm -hmm. a message of control. The the purpose of this kind of narrative ultimately is control. And you know, Catherine, what you're saying, it's such a terrifying parallel to what we're experiencing the week of this recording, right? Rahina, uh, independent journalist who did her job, was brutally murdered by those in power for speaking out against power and uh, the abuse of power. They demonized her. They, they promoted salacious misinformation. They flooded the zone with bullshit, to quote uh, Steve Bannon, right? People are confused. Oh, I think it's a break-in. Oh, I think it might be an ex-lover. Oh, she's a woman of ill repute. Is it due to corruption? I don't know. This week, uh, what we see in the few days after the attempted assassination attempt of Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi, who thankfully was not there, even though we have the confession of the attacker who said he came there to potentially kidnap her and break her kneecaps, right? He follows right-wing news. He posted about it. He's a QAnoner, conspiracy theorist. It's all there. All the dots are connected. This, the day that this gentleman was arrested and we found out that he was influenced and radicalized by the right-wing to carry out what, thankfully, they could not do on January 6th, where they came to kill Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence, we saw mm -hmm. the zone being flooded with bullshit, conspiracy theories, underwear, gay lover, you know, false plot. And now you're seeing make them making fun of it. And now you're seeing this seeped out in the mainstream and people are like, oh, I don't know what happened. Was that his gay lover? Or was that a, a, a like a, was that, was he really a right-wing assassin? Or oh, I think it was just the left wing making this stuff up. And you're seeing many of our colleagues voluntarily seed the ground, bend the knee, mm -hmm. engage in a both sides false equivalence because they don't want to be biased. And me and Daniel sit here and we're like, we see the story of Regina Cruz. We see the story of Jamal Khashoggi, a US resident and journalist for the Washington Post who was brutally murdered, dismembered on behalf of MBS in Saudi Arabia. Eh, we gave it a pass because we need Saudi Arabia. We're seeing, like you said, Donald Trump openly, openly instigate violence against journalists. And now we're seeing what's happened with Paul Pelosi. And yet you're talking about power and control. And I'm seeing much of the press, Catherine, voluntarily cede control and power. Yep. To what I think is a radicalized minority that literally has a target on their back. I mean, and you might disagree with my analysis here, but what's happening here when we see those who have the responsibility to speak out, cede the ground and bend the knee to power? And if you think I'm being you know, too harsh, go for it. You can criticize me on that. Well, I, I agree very much with what Jay Rosen said the other day on your 
on your program that the press is is covering a new world or order with an old playbook. Mm. And uh, that's that's how I describe it. And and Donald Trump really rocked the mainstream media back on its heels because they were trying to use the old norms to cover this completely new setting, as he said, the two parties don't agree on basic things like they did in the past. And so how do you cover that? And I think, and I also agree when he says, um, uh, and you've talked about this, um, some of the coverage, like the story in the New York Times about white anger and they're losing their America. I, the forgotten I, American, the forgotten right, American I, in the, the Rust Belt. Their, their, I, their, I, their I, America is vanishing. Right. I agree with with Jay saying that the mainstream media has internalized this criticism of being biased and liberal bias. And so they are afraid of being called biased. And so they're saying, well, how do we how do we cover this new emerging um, angry voice? And but again, they're using an old toolkit. And so. so I would say, I, I completely agree with him that we need a new toolkit and we need to um, look at these things in the lens of what happens in other countries with these types of tactics. For example, I'm going to toot my own horn here for a minute. Toot um, away. When, toot away. <laughs> when you cover a foreign country, you see this all the time. You're an American journalist, you're used to a certain um, environment for journalism, like I was for many decades, uh, of covering things in the United States, and you go to these other countries where there there is lying, outright lying by the government. There is um, tactics to shut down independent voices, et cetera, et cetera, which we hadn't seen before. And so, when you're a reporter in a foreign country, you recognize that and you cover it because it's not your country. And so, for example, when I was the bureau chief in Mexico um, and the, there were government officials who would just top, very top people who would just outright lie to us, I would say, we're not quoting that person anymore. I mean, that's basic journalism. Yep. If a source lies, yep. you don't go back to that person. So I come back to the United States and I see Kellyanne Conway on the Sunday shows mm-hmm. every single Sunday. After lying, lying, lying. And so I wrote a column where I said, this is journalism 101. If a source lies, you don't go back to that source. But because of this sort of political system of political coverage that we have that that reveres candidates and presidents and and doesn't want to kind of treads lightly in some ways with these people traditionally, um, nobody in the domestic press wanted to do that. And so I wrote this column about how you see this all the time in other countries and you cover it and you say, no, nope, not going to quote that, you know, executive uh, spokesperson anymore because they're lying. And so I took that column around to all the, you know, the usual suspects. I tried to sell it to the New York Times and the Washington Post and it got turned down everywhere. And this was in 2017. Two months after Trump took office, two years later, the ombudsman at the Washington Post wrote the exact same column (laughs) and said, yeah, why are we quoting Kellyanne Conway two years later? And and I just feel like that there's been this um, 
um, timidness to to somehow challenge our leaders like we're accustomed to in any other setting in any other country. And um, and I think obviously that needs to change. And the and the and the framework with which we do it needs to change. Um, and Jay again offered some solutions. Like, for example, this idea of white anger and losing, losing their America. These people, if you look to, if you look at the very fundamental level of what their anger is, it's economic. But these people are believing a narrative fed to them by their political leaders, which is being fed to them so that they will win elections because that kind of tactic wins elections. And so when the press follows that, that narrative, that rhetoric, and tries to cover it from that paradigm, that's what you're gonna get. Well, what about looking at the economics of these people and why they're angry? And look at what, what it is that they feel because they feel that the, the, the system doesn't work for them anymore. Why not look at that? Why not look at what are the solutions for people who can't get ahead because they don't make a living wage and they don't have healthcare and they can't send their kids to college. It's all the same thing, but what it's being peddled as is white anger that they're losing their America. That's an invented narrative and people without any other explanation or solutions are gonna buy it. It's an inventive it's an inventive narrative to provide white Americans with something to glob onto, right? Like I initially thought that it was about, you know, what Ron DeSantis had said in Florida, you know, to keep white people comfortable. Um, so we don't tell them the truth, right? Instead, we feed them lies. But I realize now that it isn't about white comfort. It is actually about the control that the Republican Party can have over this this body, this this electoral body. That if I, instead of saying to you the ways in which you know you can uh, 
go back to school, the way in which you can, you know, switch from coal to clean energy and how we're going to provide you with the subsidies to do that and the ways in which, you know, America is changing, but we're not going to leave you behind. Instead, they gave them a boogeyman. And it's the same boogeyman that they have been given since, you know, the beginning of the civil rights movement, or the, the, since the abolition of slavery, right? We need to provide you with somebody to blame, right, for your economic depression. You would have more if it wasn't for these other people over there. You have them buy into this scarcity model that this abundant, wealthy nation does not have nearly enough for everyone. And you're so downtrodden because of these black and brown invaders who have taken over and destroyed your good flag waving patriotic America wrapped up in apple pie. Right. And and so Daniel, can I, as you're doing this, I just want to give a quote from LBJ, president LBJ. Yes. It's my favorite one. Here's the quote. If you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. He won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Yes. And it is it is this. And that's and that's what I say. Like when when we go back and we say that it is this is not a new playbook, but it's been applicable to the push that the Republican Party is having now. And when you look at places like Mexico, when you look at places like Russia, when you look at places, you know, that have authoritarian rule, you see that the press, academics, thought leaders, authors, investigators, those are the first people to go. Um, And so I I guess, Catherine, in, in the time that we have, you know, the few minutes that we have left, you know, what is your warning? to uh, American media uh, about what they need to be paying attention to and the gravity of the situation that we're in? Well, first of all, I would say this is very much indicative of the political reporting in this country. I think there is a lot of very good reporting going on in this country every single day that doesn't get the attention, especially during an election cycle that the political reporting does. There is so much good investigative reporting on local levels, telling people about how their environment or companies are poisoning poisoning them, um, how their food supply is is being compromised all kinds of things that pe- that people really need to know to live their everyday lives and 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 there's a lot of that going on that i think gets overlooked in this whole like the the mainstream media is bad it's like you can't lump everybody all into the same basket right. a lot but of I, good folks out there but i think in terms of the 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 paradigm for political reporting is that we're taking the narratives fed by the politicians and reporting those out instead of, as Jay Rosen said, start with the voter, start with the real people and find out what's really going on with them. Because a politician will put out a lie or an agenda, and then the reporting becomes about the lie or the agenda. And in many ways, even if you're saying the lie isn't true, you're reinforcing it by repeating it so many times. And so I, I do think there is, uh, you know, a need for change. But I just want to get back to the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, first of all, I want to show that the people in Mexico who stood up to this system were very brave. 
And there's ultimately a happy ending because this criminal regime that silenced the press was ultimately taken down by the press. I really wanted to show that, that, that some reporters came in from Mexico City and started investigating and the whole house of cards fell apart. So I, I wanted to show people what the press does well, what the press does for a society and what happens when it goes away. And I think those are just two good points for everybody to be discussing in our country right now to understand. I think I think a lot of people don't understand what journalists do, mm. understand what we do, understand what happens when what we do goes away and ask yourself, do we want to go down that road? That's those are the messages in, in my book for an American audience. We need more Catherine's, less Alex Jones and Fox News. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for doing the heavy work, the investigative work to go down there, to uncover the truth, to talk to folks, to get the facts. The book, folks, is called In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. We are witnessing the parallels right here in the United States of America this week. But as Catherine says in the book, that if there's just some good folks at every single level, in the press, in our neighborhoods, school boards, hospital boards, folks who step up and fight for democracy, folks who step up and fight for truth, we can inshallah win. And we can save this fraying democracy because it's, even though it's flawed, trust me, you don't wanna live in an America where Donald Trump Jr. can mock an attempted assassination attempt on Halloween and we can call people who took over the January on January 6th, the Capitol, as ordinary Americans engaging in legitimate political uh, discussion. If they're going to come after Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi and Jamal Khashoggi and Rahina Cruz and educators, they're going to come after you next. Thank you, Catherine, for the work. Thank, Thank you for you, joining us. Thank you so Everyone much for having book. me. It was a pleasure Thanks. talking to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.